So we are now in the very last uh, sermon in our series on the church. And what we've mainly been covering is what the church is um, and then what the church does. So the church is people, and they are people who have been redeemed by the gospel. They live their lives for God because Christ has saved them uh, through faith in him by grace, through his death and resurrection, um, and they take on a new identity. They are family of God and with each other. They become citizens of a heavenly kingdom and therefore they are ambassadors to the world and that changes what they do. Um, it makes them motivated to live their lives for God's glory. It means they can maximize the love that the Father has given them to be able to love one another well um, and to use their lives um, for the propagation of the gospel. However, I think as we're coming to the end of this series, and especially as we're thinking of all of the things that the church is called to do, I think it can be a little easy to be overwhelmed with some of that information. Um, and the reason is really twofold. The reason, number one, is I think the more as a Christian you learn about things uh, you are called to do or that you need to do or that you want to do, it's really easy to feel like a failure because there are so many things to do and none of us are perfect. And the more you know, the more you see how you fall short. And therefore, I think it's easy um, to feel a little hopeless when you're learning about some of that stuff. And the second is just because of the fact that life is really hard. And so as you're learning information about what we're called to do, you're doing that in the midst of a world um, that is constantly putting the church under heavy fire. We are dealing with our own sin. Um, that makes it so difficult to trust in Christ. It makes it difficult to obey him. It makes it easy to be distracted. And so both of those things together can make it a little intimidating if everything that we're learning is stuff that we are called to do and we don't have a lot of fuel to fuel the things we need to do. And so what I'm saying is, as we're finishing this series, um, I want to give you motivation that not only every Christian has ever had, but something that was at the forefront of Paul's mind at a very specific period of his time. And I think that motivation is going to help you understand um, just why it is so good to be a Christian and why it is so good to be in the church. And so with all that being said, I want you to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4. It's the last chapter in uh, the book of 2 Timothy. And for a number of reasons that we'll look at tonight, you're going to see that it was actually probably the last epistle that Paul himself wrote we're going to be in verses 5 to 8, so we'll be looking at the last uh, verse in the first paragraph in chapter 4, and then we're going to be looking at the second paragraph of chapter 4, probably in most of your Bibles. And this is what those verses say. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, Fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. The main point that I want to talk to you guys tonight is that 
when the church remembers eternity, it maximizes their peace and their productivity. So another way of saying that is if you understand heaven and how good heaven is and why heaven is good, it will give you contentment. And as a consequence of that contentment, you will want to be as committed as possible to Christ. That's what we're talking about today. And I think it'll help you understand that if we break down what Paul is talking about at the end of 2 Timothy chapter 4. And you can break down all four of those verses into four little chunks, which is super helpful for us. And you'll understand how Paul is making this point as we work through those categories. So let me first explain to you in verse 5 what Paul begins with, which is instruction. Paul gives instruction. He begins by saying, as for you. And the you that Paul is talking to is a guy named Timothy. Timothy was a young man who Paul loved and discipled and mentored, um, which is saying a lot because not only in all of Paul's life, and but specifically in 2 Timothy, if you read that very short epistle, you'll see Paul loved a lot of people and he knew a lot of people and he invested in a lot of people. And yet he had a special place in his heart for this guy named Timothy. He seemed to have known Timothy from a young age. He grew up in a Christian home. He had um, a mother and an aunt, it mentions in the first chapter of 2 Timothy, that shared the gospel with him, and eventually he was saved. And now he's been commissioned by Paul to be a pastor. And so Paul is giving Timothy advice, not just in 2 Timothy, but in 1 Timothy, about what he should keep in mind as a pastor. He's receiving instruction. And in verse 5, you can sum up all of that instruction that Paul is giving Timothy with one phrase, which is, fulfill your ministry. Actually, in chapter 4, 1 to 5, he sums up a whole bunch of aspects of ministry. But in general, what he's saying is, do all the things God has called you to. Be a minister to the full. And he kind of breaks that down with three other things that explain what ministry consists of. Not exhaustively, this isn't everything, but it's three really, really important things. The first thing he says is to be sober-minded, to always be sober-minded. And so he's not just saying, don't drink alcohol, watch out for that stuff. What he's specifically saying is be calm and well-balanced in your attitude, Be calm and well-balanced in your attitude. One way my grandfather used to say it, he actually used to say it in two different ways, keep your head on straight, or he'd say, keep your pants on. And it was just a weird German phrase that uh, he picked up from somewhere. But basically what he was saying is, just calm down, relax, think about things clearly. And the reason Paul is saying that is because he's living in a world that you could classify as being drunk on sin. They are living lives that are not very clear and not very logical or rational because they are living for sin and for themselves. But you, as someone redeemed in Christ, do not need to live that way because Christ has given you clarity. So always think with the kind of clarity that Christ has given you. Be sober-minded. But the second thing he tells him is to endure suffering which is just to say never dismiss Christ in difficult periods of time. When it gets tricky 
or it's uncomfortable to follow Christ, just know that that is expected in the Christian life, especially if you are going to be a pastor. But just remember that in the same way God has warned you that there's going to be suffering, he's also given you enough to get through the suffering and to be able to continue to get to the end that he's promised. And the third thing he tells him is to do the work of an evangelist. Never forget the gospel and never forget sharing the gospel. Everything is about redemption that has been given to us freely through Christ. And because that is such a great privilege, never forget to share that privilege with everyone and anyone you come in contact with because the gospel is available to them and it can transform them. It can offer to them what I can't offer you and what no one else can offer you except for Christ. And he's made it clear that he can give you eternal salvation from your souls, righteousness that you need before God, and a perfect forever with him. So don't forget the gospel. That's Paul's instruction to Timothy. But he follows that immediately up in verse 6 with his own situation. And if you know Paul's situation, you know why he's giving him this kind of instruction. And the reason is because Paul's situation was that he was about to die. Paul is in prison. It's probably a second or third imprisonment at this point, seemingly at the lowest moment of human existence, which is waiting in a dark, cold cell to be brought out publicly to be executed. And even though if I was in that situation, and I'm sure you were thinking in your if you were in that situation, that might be incredibly intimidating, Paul does not use language that sounds like he's phased at all. And he says that by describing his death in two ways. The first way he describes it is he's about to be poured out as a drink offering. What he's thinking of is probably something that's described in places like Numbers chapter 15, in which a certain kind of offering that's called a drink offering, at the end of that sacrifice, um, someone would take wine and they would pour it out on the altar. It was the end of the sacrifice. And so Paul seems to be using this imagery because in many places he thought of not just giving sacrifices to God, but thinking of your entire life as a sacrifice to God. For example, Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Paul says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Your whole life is a sacrifice. And the reason I'm explaining that to you in detail is because when Paul says I'm being poured out as a drink offering, it's really just another way of him saying, this is the inevitable end of my life. I was either going to die through sickness or someone executing me because of hatred for the gospel or natural causes or whatever it was. My life is all given to God and it's going to end in death. This is not a surprise to me. This is the inevitable end of my life. And then the second way he describes his death is even more surprising. He describes it as the time of my departure. You could picture Paul's whole life like he's sitting in one of those uh, big open rooms in an airport when you're waiting for your flight and they say, now boarding people number one. He's like, okay, that's not me. I'm number five. Okay, now boarding groups two and three. Okay, that's not me. 
Now groups four, still not me. Now five, okay, my turn. And he gets on the plane. That is a very, very calm way to think about your death, like waiting to depart. And if you know the word that he uses, that departure, it's even more surprising because the word literally means to loosen or to release. Because in Paul's day, they didn't have planes to go places. They had ships to go places. And when a ship went out to sea, they undid or loosened the ropes that were tying it to the dock. And they undid or released the anchor that was holding it on the ground. And then it went off to sea. So Paul is thinking about his death, not as the worst moment of his life, but actually the best moment of his life. His death is being released from this world and going to a different and better destination. But before Paul moves on to explain what that next destination is, what his future is, before he looks forward, he looks back. And in verse 7, he reflects on his life. Paul reflects on his life in ministry. And I use reflect very specifically because if you read verse 7, it cannot look like reflection. It can look like bragging. This was an issue that I used to have when I was in youth and I was reading the Bible. And I would see, man, Paul seems to brag about his life a lot. But if you understand grammatically what's happening in verse 7, it's a lot easier to understand Paul isn't talking about how good he is, but how good Christ has been to him. Because the emphasis is not on himself. It's not, I've done this, I've done this, I've done this. Grammatically, what comes first is actually the parts of life that he's describing. It says, the fight I fought, the race I've finished, the faith I've kept. And if you were reading in the Greek, you would understand he's thinking about his life and how he's been able to get through it, not how good he has been at life, which helps you understand what he's talking about when he starts describing life in a certain way. The first way he describes life is a fight. Every Christian's life is a fight, but Paul's life was a particularly difficult fight. He was sent into the ring of suffering. Actually, way back when Paul was called to ministry in Acts chapter 9, God literally described the rest of Paul's life as sharing the gospel and suffering. That was Paul's whole life ahead of him. And every time he went to a new place, it was like getting in the ring of a boxing match. And the world was sending out false teachers. And the devil himself was sending in people who would accuse and attack him and teach false doctrine. And all the while, he was going through other random circumstances of pain and his own personal sin. And yet, amidst all of that, Paul doesn't just describe it as some fight. He describes it as a good fight. Actually, a better way to describe it is a grand fight. Paul is admitting life was difficult, but he's also admitting, I would fight this fight all over again if I could. Because this fight is worth it, is the point that Paul is describing. He's saying it's worth it because the value of what I'm doing is everything. The fight is worth it because the cause that I get to participate in is the greatest cause anyone could ever commit to. But he also describes his life as a race, not just a fight, but a race. 
And again, all Christians are called to run a race. Paul's described it in 1 Corinthians 9 and Hebrews chapter 12. But again, Paul's life was an especially exhausting race. You could say that Paul lived life and suffered in many occasions with a kind of spiritual dehydration. He was removed from friends and friends abandoned him. He was put in places where he seemed to be the only one fighting as hard as he was to get to the end, to establish churches, and to share the gospel. And yet again, Paul isn't talking about how difficult the race is, but how Christ got him to the end of the race. And the reason he's saying that is because Christ gave him so many things. He gave him his word. He gave him his spirit. He gave him the armor of God to put on. And he gave him the people of God to encourage him and to bless him with funds and encouragement to keep going. But ultimately, all of that was because of his coach. Paul's coach was Christ, who was always with him by his spirit and by his direction. And because of Christ, he could continue without quitting. And that's why both of those things result in Paul saying, I've kept the faith. 1 John chapter 5, verse 4, John says, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. I think that verse from John helps clarify what Paul is talking about. He's not saying he was the best person to ever believe ever. Like a political person once said, like, no one's better than me. No one does this better than me. That's not what Paul is talking about. Paul is saying, I'm not getting to the end of the race. I'm not doing well in the fight because I believe better than anyone. It's because the Savior I believe in is better than anyone. The Savior that I know is the only person worthy of trust, the only person who could get me through, the only person who could motivate me to continue, and the only one who could truly promise to get me to the end. So why wouldn't I depend on him? Why wouldn't I put all my eggs in his basket? And Paul, again, is not reflecting on these things to brag about how good he has been in his life at his death, but he's using these reflections to tell Timothy the peace that I have gotten in life, you can have too. You haven't seen all of the ways that Christ is going to be faithful to you, but if you trust in him, you can absolutely bank that your life will end up the same as me. You will get to the end of the race. You will be able to fight the fight, not because you have the ability, but Christ has the ability to get you to the end. And that ultimately leads us to verse 8, which is Paul's motivation. And this is the most important one of all because this is the thing that helped give Paul the right instruction. It helped him have hope in his situation, and it gave him joy in his reflection. And ultimately, his motivation was that he was eagerly awaiting seeing Christ face to face. Paul was excited to see Christ in eternity forever. He was ready to leave this world and embrace the Savior that he spent his life serving. That was Paul's motivation, to finally arrive at heaven. He describes heaven as his appearing, which is Christ's appearing, whether he appears when he dies or he returns one day. And he also describes that as a great day because he's going to receive a crown of righteousness. 
Now, even in studying this, the idea of a crown of righteousness, people have a debate on which thing it might mean. It might mean we're rewarded with eternal life, which is based on Christ's righteousness. So Christ will appear, his own righteousness will be upon us, and we'll walk into heaven. And some people actually think it's different from that, even though that's true. They think Paul is talking about the unique rewards that individual believers will have for their own righteousness that they worked out. Not a righteousness that saves you, but a righteousness that Christ nonetheless rewards you. But the point is, Paul actually is not specific on which of these he's talking about. And he doesn't need to be because he's actually not really maximizing either one of those things. The point that Paul is talking about is that because he knew his security was in Christ, and because he knew that his inheritance was guaranteed, he wanted until that day to pursue every avenue possible in pleasing Christ and being used by him. And at this moment, at the end of his life, he is so thankful that Christ got to use him that he is so excited to see Christ, to thank him, and then to praise him for the rest of eternity. That's what Paul's talking about. In another place, in Philippians chapter 1, verse 23 and 26, Paul says it this way. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know I am able to remain and continue with you all for your progress and your joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glorify in Christ Jesus. What Paul was talking about is that I'm ready to die. As soon as I met Christ, I was ready to meet him face to face. The best thing that could possibly happen to me is to die. But until then, Christ hasn't given me all of his gifts and all of the glory of the gospel and all of this motivation to serve and please him just to hide in the closet until heaven. He hasn't given me all these things to sit on the spiritual couch until my death. He's given me these things to rejoice that I could be used by Christ so that I could share Christ to those who know him and those who need to know him more deeply. And that will give me greater joy and greater expectation to see him face to face. Not that I have time to earn my salvation, but that my salvation is earned already. And therefore, the time I have left is to maximize my life for Christ. And no matter the difficulties involved in that, that is a life of real purpose. And the reason we have this in our Bibles is not because 2 Timothy was just for Timothy. 2 Timothy was for the whole church. That's why it's in your Bibles. And I don't think that was lost on Paul as he was writing these words to Timothy because they're not just specific for pastoral ministry. They are specific for you and they are radically important for your future life in the church and for your future life with the church. This is what I mean. Paul knows that when all believers, all believers have heaven in their spiritual headlights, it radically affects their lives for the better. If you know you're bound for eternity now because of what Christ has done, you will maximize, maximize your life for Christ now. 
And it's something that you need to hold on to when you live life in the church. So I want to take these things and I want to give you at least three applications for why this information about heaven should be great motivation when you live with other Christians and serve with other Christians and share how joyful it is to be a Christian with those who have yet to believe in him. These are three ways that you can think about this as you think about eternity. Number one, eternity gives the church focus. It gives the church focus. Another way to say this is it gives the church purpose and direction. This is referring back to the fact that Paul described the Christian life as a fight. I hope none of you have fought very much. I used to wrestle, and I've done a little bit of boxing, and I'm not good at either, and I don't love either one, but one thing I did learn from the brief opportunities I had is that fighters need focus. You need to know not just that you're fighting a person, you, you don't need to just know them and their style, but you need to know where you need to hit them and where you need to adjust. And your eyesight on your opponent is essential. You need to make sure you are looking in the right places at the right time to be as effective as you can. But when you need focus, the number one thing that could destroy your focus is fear. If you are scared of your opponent, it will affect your whole performance in the fight. And actually, more than anything, it could remove you from the fight. Focus, which could be destroyed by fear. And those two things are huge for the church because the church tends to lose focus and the church also tends to be too fearful. When we're talking about keeping focus, what I'm talking about is that one day, if you're in a future church, you're going to be looking for friends. Maybe you'll be married and have a family, and so you'll be looking for other families. You'll be looking for good values to teach your family and yourself, and you'll be looking for good preaching that will grow you and equip you and comfort you. And while you should look for all of those things, those things can very quickly turn into comfort. And so what began as looking for a good church to grow in and thrive in has become somewhere to hide. And God has not called you into a church to stay hiding and to stay comfortable. God wants you to be comforted, but he doesn't want you comfortable. There's a big difference. And when God has provided you a church that equips you and loves you, and trains you, you should use those things to go out into the world and fight. People are very comfortably living for now without any thought of eternal judgment. And Christians in the church right now are struggling with their own sins. There's a fight out there, and there's a fight in here. But when you understand that eternity is secured in Christ and yet he is still giving you a mission now, you can take your eyes off of comfort. You can take your eyes off of things of this world that are passing away and you can maximize your life on what actually matters, which is pointing people to eternity. One pastor said it this way, 
If there awaits for you and for me an eternal inheritance of immeasurable glory, then it is senseless to spend so much time and energy and money sacrificing so much of what God has given us now to obtain for so brief a time in a corruptible form what we're going to experience for eternity in its consummate perfection. What that pastor is saying is, why am I wasting my time living for me and living for now when I'm going to experience immeasurable glory in the future? That should make me want to help other people long for that glory, long to see that Christ, and to set aside things now that are only going to waste away. And that same reminder that motivates me to take my eyes off this world and onto eternal purposes is the same eternity that reminds me I don't need to fear. I don't need to be worried about all of the things that might be in the way of me committing to that. The Lord is on our side. It is a fight, but it is a good fight. It is a race, but is one that we can finish through Christ. And so we can help people be presented before Christ for eternity and pursue holiness together now. And so as another pastor said it this way, if we even begin to comprehend the risen Christ in all of his glory or faintly hear the heavenly choirs that surround the throne with their anthems of praise or if we can imagine what life in the presence of the Lord will be like, then we can never again be satisfied with worship as usual. We will always be striving to make our worship fit for glory. This isn't to make you anxious or nervous about the ways you haven't maximized your life for Christ. It's presenting you with an opportunity to once again start fresh and start maximizing your life for the things that truly matter. Eternity helps give the church focus. Number two, eternity gives the church perseverance. Eternity gives the church perseverance. Again, Paul uses the description of a race that Christians are running. And the reason he says that is because races are hard. If you've ever run a race in cross country, you'll know there's a lot of things about a race that make it difficult. One thing that I hate about running is that it gets harder the longer you go. The closer you get to the end, the harder it seems to get. It's a big reason that I don't like to run a lot and probably a reason maybe you don't like to run either. Another reason races are really hard is because there's all sorts of moments where we start noticing the difficulty of the race and so we convince ourselves of reasons to quit. Getting to the end is not a big deal. It'd be better to be comfortable now. I'm not going to get a lot. The only thing that matters is for me to rest. I should just stop. Everybody else seems to be stopping as well, so there's not going to be peer pressure. You can convince yourself of reasons to quit. And ultimately, the reason I think both of those things happen is we forget how good the end is going to be. We forget how good that rest is going to feel, not through quitting, but through getting to the end and really accomplishing something that matters. We're being part of a race that mattered. And also the fact that getting to the end and receiving an award, receiving the personal 
edification of getting to the end or receiving a medal or congratulations or support, that those things in that moment make it worth getting to the end. And that matters because being a Christian, even a Christian who heaven is promised to because of Christ, it is still difficult to finish well. All Christians secured in Christ are going to heaven because of Christ. But many Christians crawl over the finish line. This is not something that I understand. But it is something that I know a lot of older Christians begin to notice with older Christians than them. And it is our duty as the church to help other Christians, especially the ones who are getting close to the end, to remember it's worth it. And therefore, the church is called to surround each other with reminders of heaven. I love how J.C. Ralph said this, where he just started like letting loose and bombarding with all sorts of reasons why Christians should remind themselves of the end. J.C. Ralph, he said it this way, be patient under the enmity of the gates of hell. So be patient when life feels like hell. It is all working together for your good. It tends to sanctify. It will keep you awake. It will make you humble. It will drive you nearer to the Lord Jesus Christ. It will remove you from the world. It will help you pray more. And above all, it will make you long for heaven. It will teach you to say with your heart as well as your lips, come Lord Jesus, thy kingdom come. The captain of our salvation loses none of his soldiers. His plans are never defeated. His supplies never fail. Christ can ever maintain his own cause. All is going on well, though our eyes may not yet see it. The kingdoms of this world shall yet become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. All present difficulties and all present distractions are a lie. When life seems like it's getting worse, Christ has promised us everything is getting better. Just keep running. And the church needs those reminders when tragedy strikes. Recently, a number of us in the church went to a conference with the Gettys called the Sing Conference in Santa Clarita. And the first song right from the get-go was so awesome to just spend time singing all these worship songs that were talking about eternity. And right after, uh, the guy who was running it, Keith Getty, came up to speak, and the first thing he mentioned was that all of them as a team were struggling. And the reason they were struggling is because they went to a school, or rather his four daughters went to a school, and just a week before... The school right next to his daughter's schools had a school shooting and multiple young children died. They were dealing with not just a tragedy, but a tragedy that was so close to home and affected so many people that were close to him. And yet there was something about his joy and the team's joy and their cadence that could both struggle through that and yet still be joyful. And the reason Keith Getty said was because eternity loosened their grip off the things of this world. And he said it actually motivated them even more to continue to put on that conference because the church needs to sing about eternity. 
Singing is just one of the ways that remind us that this world is broken and sinful, and no matter what happens, God is still in control, and he's still working all things for his glory and for our good. And that's also the reminder we need when there's difficulty, whether with you or other people in the church. I used to do speed skating, short track speed skating, and the race that I dreaded more than any other race was called the 3,000 meter. And it was because it was the longest race. It was 27 laps around an arena. And it was even worse because my coach um, ignored the advice of every other coach. Every other coach said the only thing that really matters um, is just winning. And so if you can go as slow as you can and conserve as much energy as you want, Um, Just do that. Get in a train. Hide behind everyone else and conserve your energy and just book it as close to the end as possible. My coach ignored that. She said, you sprint 90% your energy for 20 laps and 110% of your energy for the last seven laps. And it made it very intimidating to do any 3,000 meter race after that until I started racing with her on the bench because she screamed louder than anyone else, which was impressive because the more that I got to race, the more I had people all around these tiny little arenas who would be shouting encouragement to me. And you'd be surprised at how easy it is to ignore your own lacking of energy, to ignore your own exhaustion when an arena full of people and a bench full of coaches is screaming out encouragement to you. That's what the church should look like. And it's not because we have the right words to say. It's not because we're wise enough to figure out everything that people need to hear. It's because we know where everything is ending. It's because the end of the story is guaranteed. And all we need to do is look at Christ and remind ourselves we have no reason to doubt him, especially when it comes to eternity. So the church needs to remind each other of eternity so that we persevere. And here's the last one, which I'll just briefly mention, which is that eternity gives the church hope. Eternity gives the church hope. Life is a fight, and life is a race, and you'll experience that more as you grow in Christ, and you fight harder, and you run longer. But the hope of heaven isn't just some thing that's way in the future. It is something so good it affects your life now. You have no idea the kind of encouragement that you receive now when you know that the fight will be fought and the race will be run because Christ has promised you the end and the ability to keep going now. To keep going now. Paul says it in Philippians chapter 2, verse 13 and 14. He says this, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That's a little intimidating. If you're saved, prove it. That's what it seems like it sounds like. And do it with fear and trembling. That sounds like a lot. Until he follows it up with saying this. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You can keep going because God has given you the ability to keep going because God has guaranteed that all of his people can keep going. No fight is too hard for them. No race is too long for them because God works in you. That's not just future hope. 
That's future hope that affects your life now. That's what the church needs to be reminded of now. And if you look at verse 8, you can see all of the things that give him hope now. He says that at the end of his life, he's going to be awarded a crown of righteousness from a righteous judge. Ask yourself, how on earth can God reward unrighteous people? Because of Christ. No matter all of the ways you fall short and all of the ways you might fail and all of the guilt and burdens of shame that you have, none of them are affecting eternity. You're secured. Let that motivate you to maximize your life for Christ. Let that fuel your commitment. But don't let it steal your contentment because you're secured in Christ. The righteous judge will reward unrighteous people because of the righteousness of his son. And that means when it gets to the end, not just Paul, but you too, he says in verse 8, can love his appearing. You can find joy when Christ returns, even though we're sinners. We don't need to fear the return of Christ, and we don't need to fear death. We can be excited and joyful for when that happens. This is the way one pastor said it. God wants his people longing for the new creation, up on tiptoe and living toward it. He wants us restlessly patient for the future so that we're incredibly productive in the present. And that's why he's told us how good it's going to be. The Bible describes heaven in vivid detail. And I've specifically avoided describing it so that you can go home and you can read about how good heaven is by yourself. And you can be motivated to understand how good it is to be a Christian. But as you read those things, understand all of the goodness that's coming should make you want to share about that goodness now. And it should make you want to use the brief time that we have to help people in the church to see it more clearly and to love it more dearly so they can walk with Christ more nearly and to share it with people outside of the church who need to know you need to know Christ because I want to be with you for eternity. I want you to fight your sin now. I want you to understand the purpose of your creation and all of creation and I want you to understand where everything is going. And until that time, I want you to know, no matter what you do, no matter the sin you struggle with or the ways that you fall short, Christ is proud of you. Christ is proud of you. And he will be proud of you if you're in him when he comes again. So let's pray. Father, you are good and you do good. Help us understand your goodness. Father, as we bring all of this church series to a head, please help us to uh, understand what the purpose of it was. Father, we want to be part of a local church, but we also under want to understand the purposes of the church. There are so many things we didn't cover. But Father, I pray with all of the time that we've got to spend in so many different scriptures, that you would see how good your purposes are for your people, how motivated we could be to do all the things you've called us to do and how it's possible, even though we are imperfect, even though we fall short, Father, you have called us your children. 
and you will bring us home. So please help us understand who you are and what you've done. And Father, for any student here who has no idea how to be assured of salvation, has no idea why it is good to be a Christian, please help them understand that we are not saved by anything that we have done. And there's no way that we could relieve ourselves from the judgment that is due because of the bad things we've done. But it is because of your son Christ who lived a perfect life that has been freely given to us and was punished on the cross and died so that the eternal death we deserve might be on him. That through that great exchange, you have not only saved us to be with you for all eternity, but have united us in the fellowship of your people until that day comes. That we may be used mightily to share the gospel and to grow in the gospel until that day comes. Father, plant those truths deep in our hearts. And help us discuss them well as we meditate on these things together in our groups. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you guys for listening. That is the church series. So we've done three topical series so far this year, which is wild. I'm telling you, I really want to get back to a book really badly because trying to talk about the whole Bible is a lot, but I'm so thankful um, for the kinds of questions that you guys have and uh, the ways you are growing in some of this material. So if you have any questions about anything that we've covered, please let me know because there's so many things we didn't cover. And just to give you guys a heads up, the next series that we're going to do with the brief time in this year we have left is on friendship. So we're not just going to be covering what it means to be a good friend or how do I get, friend, uh, how do I get friends. We're specifically going to talk about wisdom in friendships. Because even looking at your questions last week, I could tell you guys have a good understanding of what it means to be a good friend. It's just to be a Christian and to love people. And so what I want to do is talk about some of those areas that feel a little gray. So I want to talk about what the Bible says about ending friendships. I want to talk about what the Bible has to say about friends with the opposite gender. I want to talk about the ways that uh, we are called to or not to be friends with unbelievers. That's the kind of stuff. Um, I think the Bible has so many answers to your questions. But if you have other things about friendship that you want to know about, tell me ASAP. Um, Because I've already started collecting a whole bunch of stuff on that. And I want to talk as specifically as possible as we can on this topic. Or um, it won't be as helpful as it could be. So don't be shy. Please ask me your questions. If it's easy, I'll tell you in a conversation or we can meet another time or one of your leaders can meet another time. And if it's a really big question, which a lot of your questions are going to be, then we'll cover it. I'll make sure to cover it in our series. So don't be shy and ask me about that. Um, And as we look back on this topic, some of you raised your hands or any of you else who are interested in knowing this topic more, um, just come up front and I'll go and get more copies of this book that I've already given out, Rediscover Church by Jonathan Lehman, and I uh, can't remember the other guy's name. Um, but it's a really, really helpful and really simple book that talks about the church, and it covers some of the things I didn't cover as well. 